Good afternoon. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the fifth program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is about the demise of local news. What are we losing? We'll talk about local news and local democracy. What is a news desert? Does Maine have a news desert? Does it have some of them? What happens in towns that have no institutional news coverage? Does it affect self-governance at the local level? Can citizens or grassroots journalism fill the gap? And even if we have plenty of citizen journalists, do we lose cohesion as a community without an institutional resource that provides us with a common understanding? This show is being pre-recorded on May 17th, so we won't be taking any listener calls today. Send your comments to news at WERU.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum. Let me introduce our guests. Penelope Abernathy is a visiting professor at the Northwestern University Medill School of Journalism, Media, Integrated Marketing Communications. Welcome, Penelope. Penny? Thank you. It's great to be here. Dan McLeod is the managing editor at the Bangor Daily News. So happy to have you with us, Dan. Nice to be here. Thanks. And Lincoln Milstein is a retired media executive who now blogs local news at the Quiet Side Journal. Delighted to have you joining us as well, Lincoln. Thank you for the invitation. So let's get started. Uh, Penny, I'll put it to you first. You pioneered the research into what we call news deserts. Tell us what you mean by a news desert. Well, I, I'm so glad you asked that question because everybody thinks of news deserts and I think they think of a lot of things. I'm, my own definition for what a news desert is has changed over the years. And where I'm really focused right now is looking at communities where residents lack access and they can lack access for a number of reasons, but they lack access to critical information needs act like lack access to a source, whether it's print, digital or broadcast that gives them those uh, a comprehensive look as well as a credible look at what those critical uh, information uh, needs are, whether it ranges from education locally or politics locally. Is this kind of a rural versus urban problem? You would think so. I mean, I think most people assumed it was going to be a rural problem, but I mean, we see, in fact, I'm just uh, doing an update to the uh, 2020 report that I did and uh, it's holding quite uh, constant over the years in that, you know, at least 60% of the what we would call communities that have lost a newspaper or lack uh, ready access to uh, a good local news source are located in metro areas. Uh, it, it is uh, it, many of them are suburbs that surround larger cities uh, where they're dominated by a large metro presence uh, of television as well as newspapers but you don't have that on the ground coverage of the very uh, specific and very local government entities that control the quality of life in a community. So like what, what entities would those be? Uh, those entities would be, uh, uh, depending on whether you're in New England or you're in the South or in the Midwest, it might be, it's not only county commissioners, it's not only town councils, it's, uh, it's the whole range of things. It's just school board. I mean, in many ways, if you think about it and you have young children, 
the decisions made by the school board affect the quality of their lives now and in the future more than just about anything that uh, uh, you can read about. Dan, uh, you know, we read Penny's 2020 report, and in Maine, the counties that qualified were Som- Somerset, Piscataquis, Franklin, Waldo, and Sagadahawk. I mean, we don't really think of some of those as particularly rural counties, but what, what would be your observations about the news coverage in those places? Well, I mean, certainly, uh, certainly Waldo, I mean, we've had a presence there, a daily news reporter there for, you know, generations and, you know, Abby Curtis covering that, that uh, Belfast and the surrounding area very closely for years. Same thing at Piscataquis, we've had the, we have a weekly newspaper there, the Piscataquis Observer, and we have a reporter in Dover Foxcroft. So it, it, it seems like in places where, obviously, where there's um, sparser populations, there's fewer reporters. But there's also really fascinating stories that a lot of Mainers care about. And we have people, that's why we have, you know, people all over Aroostook County. It's, you know, that's why we still cover, you know, northern Penobscot County as well. I mean, would you think, though, that there are news gaps in those counties? Like, I mean, surely you can't cover every select board. In the state? No, I would love right. to. Right. Um, the No, I mean, I, I, I mean, part of it is is knowing what people in those areas care about and covering them um, in a way that they find interesting. So that means in in a lot of places, we don't cover every single thing that every board does, but we pay attention. You know, we're following stuff. We're showing up to the big meetings that where we know that there's going to be big decisions made. We're helping people to understand um, what may be coming down the road. I don't think that anyone would argue that we should have fewer reporters anywhere. I think that in I think, and I've been following the um, Penny's research for a while, and I, I do think that it's a it's a pretty deep concern in a lot of places. In Maine, it seems like the at least the regions that we cover, the you know political participation rates are still fairly high. Uh, it seems like the some of the more severe kind of news deserts you see elsewhere are not um, not really uh, applicable in some of these places we're talking about. But now, Lincoln, you, you retired to Maine. And Hancock County, where you um, have your camp, is not a news desert, yet you started blogging on local news in your community. So clearly there are some stories there that you're covering that even our excellent weeklies are not able to do, right? We have an excellent weekly newspaper in my town, uh, the Mount Desert Islander, which just won the top award for the best weekly in Maine, as good as it is, it's got, you know, limited number of reporters, probably about four, I would say. And there are four towns here. And so they could get stretched pretty thin just trying to cover the basics. What I do is I look beyond the basics. And while I met, while I attend a lot of select board meetings, a lot of meetings, I, I look for deeper threads. Come to find out, for instance, the planning board chairman in Bar Harbor has uh, is going to enrich himself uh, because of uh, ordinances that he had control over the years. And uh, he's in the process of building a 44-room hotel while he's chair of the planning board. So you come across stories like that that may not appear necessarily in a planning board meeting, but I'm afford the luxury of, of being able to pull that thread and going a little deeper on some of these stories. And is that the kind of thing, Penny, that's of concern in these areas where there's not enough coverage of local governance that 
corruption can go unnoticed? Let me say, uh, start by saying, uh, I'm so glad Dan and Lincoln are on the program. They are inspiring in every way. Dan, because he's thinking as a traditional editor of what can I do? How can I bring uh, communities in uh, that are, that I'm not actually located in, bring them into the whole news uh uh, system. And Lincoln is looking for things that aren't being covered. You know, to put in perspective, I think the loss of news, if you put it in a national perspective, New England comes out pretty darn well. <laughs> I've had a home in uh, Vermont for more than 20 years. And, you know, I, I don't lack for local news there. Uh, people are always stepping up and it's a small enough state. The same thing applies in, to a degree on to both New Hampshire and Maine in that there's kind of a sense of community and a sense of being there. But if you look at it from a national standpoint, we're really looking at two things. We've lost more than a fourth of our newspapers. Most of those are weeklies, right? Uh, with very, But they were very important to the towns where they were located. And secondly, we've lost more than half of our reporters. And most of those were on the regional newspapers. Now, what's important about that is those regional newspapers were once so large, they could afford to have people roaming through areas like a Lincoln Millstein who could say, what's something you, you are, is bubbling just below the surface? Who are you suspicious of, right? What can we do to kind of uh, highlight a story? And we've lost that because many of the regionals have, have had their staffs decreased by more than 75%. So in North Carolina, for instance, the Raleigh News and Observer used to care, cover 48, I mean, 58 counties in Eastern North Carolina. Today, they basically cover three, right? So if you lose a newspaper in an, in an outlying area, especially a weekly, you've got a double loss because you don't have the regional reporters like Dan or the regional editors thinking, what are the stories I need to have come out of there? So, I mean, I think we need to think about it both in terms of what is at stake in New England, where New England has a pretty good track record compared to especially the South and especially to the Midwest uh, and even the West. There are certain areas in the West because it's so vast uh, on the West Coast that, are, that have news deserts. But I mean, I think you need to say what is missing now and how, how can you support it with people like Lincoln thinking about what still needs to be there. Let me add, add one thing. I think a newspaper uh, is just more, it's more than just news. Uh, right. it, it really gives the community a sense of community. So, yeah. you know, for instance, I love the opinion pages. I love reading the letters to the editor. I love reading the obits. Uh, I even love reading the classified ads. And, you know, you, 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 you get a sense of what my hometown is about when you read the breadth of the content in a newspaper. And often I get ideas from, I actually did stories off of classified advertising. Uh, when somebody's looking for a director of a very interesting uh, nonprofit, uh, I've done articles on that. Like libraries and like post offices, you develop a sense of community where when you go to the post office, you might run into somebody and chat them up and ask what's on their mind. When you go to the library, the same thing. I think that this loss of community, the alternative to that is people sitting on social media and looking for content that they subscribe to and going deeper and in a much more fragmented way toward content that they want. Um, 
which is a very skewed view of the world, by the way. It's not a sense of community. It's, it's actually you're going deeper into your rabbit hole. And I think that ultimately affects everything that we stand for. We, we're losing that uh, and we're getting much more fragmented. So, Dan, I want to, um, there's a lot of themes here that I want to explore a little bit more deeply. But I think, you know, in terms of the main scene, you might be the one to answer best about what we've lost here in Maine. I mean, I can remember Earl Brucklin when he uh, was the editor at the Bar Harbor Times talking about the pressure he was under 20 years ago for staff reductions. I mean, what has been the scope of the loss here in Maine in terms of the number of reporters that are working bylines, if you will? I don't have an exact number. I mean, it's certainly, you know, not what it was 25 years ago, but the business has also totally changed. Um, the number of people that it required to put together like a very large print paper, I mean, in all of the various, you know, sections that we had, you know, that was, I mean, that was a, it was much bigger than it is now. Um, obviously now that, a newspaper now does is his much more sort of focused role. I would say uh, that doesn't mean it's better, but it is it is a more focused role now that there's other sort of amusements that people have elsewhere, right? So it used to be like a general purpose item that we, you know, our our, our biggest thing was we could get it to your doorstep at five in the morning, and it had like all of these things that it, that that most people would be interested in. Now there's so many different ways that people. Um, the you know get to entertain and amuse themselves that we it doesn't all have to be in one paper so there's just fewer people required to put that together and obviously like I said we would prefer to have more reporters in more places um, and I think the, the digital future um, will make that possible but yeah it's hard to it's hard to um, overstate how how that sort of the loss of people and what it means. Let's do a little station break. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is the demise of local news. What are we losing? Our guests this afternoon are Dan McLeod, Managing Editor of the Bangor Daily News, Lincoln Milstein, who blogs local news at the Quiet Side Journal, and Penelope Abernathy, visiting professor at the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University. This program was pre-recorded on May 17th. No listener calls are being taken now. So, Penny, when we, we, we talk about this news desert phenomenon and the growing loss of news deserts as a threat to democracy, characterize that threat for us. Well, I, I think that we are very fortunate to have had a lot of researchers uh, across multiple disciplines to tackle that in recent years. Uh, there, and what they have found is when you lose a newspaper or a newspaper pulls out of an area, like a metro, voter participation goes down, especially in local elections. And I'm, I'm dealing with that right now. I mean, I, I voted the, today in the primary in North Carolina and had to really search hard to find who was running for the, the various offices, both state and local, uh, from all of that. Uh, so voter participation goes down. Uh, we know now that corruption in both government and in business, small businesses go up. Uh, it doesn't start big. It starts small. Somebody takes a $1,000 trip thinking, as Lincoln mentioned, no one will notice, and uh, no one challenges it. So there's a lack of transparency that comes. Because of that lack of transparency, when you don't have news coverage of local uh, routine government meetings, somebody watching over what the commissioners are doing or uh, the select board's doing and how they're spending the money or the school board, uh, bond issues 
costs more. So taxes go up. Uh, and then, of course, the other thing that we find, too, is that there's increased polarization uh, and a lack of trust in institutions. That's been documented by several nationwide studies. Local news organizations still have a higher degree of trust, especially local newspapers, but even that is declining. So back to what uh, uh, Lincoln was saying, I think we need to look at good, strong local news organizations, newspapers in whatever form they're delivered in, as being uh, builders of democracy, as well as nurturers of a sense of community, which is so vitally important to both uh, the future of this country and, and its society. What, what effect do you think online delivery is going to have over all of this? I mean, it's I get the Bangor Daily News both online and in paper form, but it's different reading it online, right? You're less likely to read every single page when you're reading it online. Well, see, I, I don't worry as much about dedicated newspaper readers making the transition and reading Dan's uh, newspaper online as I are cannot afford high-speed internet. I think that is going to be uh, the access to high-speed internet is going to be critical for areas like North Carolina, where I am right now, or Maine going forward. Um, and, you know, I just was reading the latest, um, uh, some of the latest surveys that have gone out. And I mean, I know how hard it is for me to get high-speed internet here on a farm how much I have to pay to get it. It's not high-speed internet. No one who's ever connected to broadband would call it high-speed internet. Uh, and I was just reading that something like 45% of homes in low-income homes say they cannot afford the, the access to broadband internet, which gives you a much better experience. Uh, another 40, 50% say they don't have the access. To it. It's not, they don't have the technological access to it. So I think as news people, we need to think very carefully about how people are accessing it, how they can access it in a way that's relevant to them. Because as I say to many people, if you can't access high speed internet, you are basically limited to your smartphone. And what that means right now is the most um, usable, friendly, customer friendly app on your phone is Facebook. And so you're limited to what's on Facebook, and often what travels on Facebook is not what Dan has had in his newspaper. If, if anything, it's a news organization, it's usually what was the crime of the week or the crime of the day on a news organization. That's yeah. certainly what I get on my news feed down here, which doesn't help you make wise decisions, whether you're going to the voting booth or you're going to the grocery store. So, Dan, I mean, your paper has been a leader in the transition to online. You've been working on the transition to online for a long time. You know, what observations can you add to that? And it, plus, your paper covers some rural areas of Maine that are exactly in the broadband situation that Penny described. Yeah, and I mean, 70% of the people who come to our site are coming via their phone as well. And I think that's I don't know what that is across the nation, but that's pretty much what how people use the internet now in most places. Yeah, we uh, went to the, the digital first model, uh, I don't know, something like 12 years ago. And, and now the newsroom is, you know, our goals and our sort of daily processes and our posting times and deadlines are all based around the web because that's where the audience has led us, you know, um, we're sort of, that's how they want their news delivered. So 
Yeah, I mean, I think that the the um, you know some of the the places with I mean, obviously, I'm as I said earlier, I'm coming to you from Unity, where I live down a camp road, and I'm you know joining this meeting via the hotspot on my iPhone. So um, I have internet issues as well, and I think that they're you know I'm hoping that the broadband expansion efforts will will help on on that end. Lincoln, you know your newsletter, your blog is. Um... You know, it's it's a selective thing. It's got it's um, you know I'll say it's quirks, it's personality, it's you coming across. It's really great, but it's not a community new- newspaper. And as the actual newspapers begin to look more like online delivery, what does that do to the sense of community that you described before? Like we're not all getting the same thing. Uh, no, I I actually think I'm a I'm a blogger, so I actually compare myself less to newspapers than to the original pamphleteers, yep. uh, which actually predated newspapers. And, you know, the pamphleteers were very instrumental in creating the community in this country, which led to its independence. And so it's kind of, you know, if you read my blog, I'm reasonably strident, <laughs> um, but I'm, but I'm a, a trained reporter. I know how to get information. So it's an acquired taste. Um, and um, I do think, though, that uh, it's penetrating enough so that, you know, I, I get three to 5,000 readers a week. Um, and those are people who want that, that, that kind of information. I, I wish that my model is that I'm a, I'm a blogger and my, my content is free. I, I really had hoped that more, you know, there are more now more retired journalists in the United States than actual working journalists. And I wish that, you know, my hope had been that more of us would pick up the mantle and, 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 and begin to do some of this because there's a lot of skill out there from retired journalists. Maybe some of them will hear our show today and get inspired by your experience. But, but I mean, back to the point about cohesion and you talked about the post office, you know, the, um, the newspaper, the library, these are, you know, community infrastructure elements that are becoming more and more fragmented. How is that affecting our democracy in your view, Lincoln? Well, there's no shared, there's less shared information and less community conversation around shared interests. Decisions are being made in silos. Um, You know, if I run into somebody in the post office, I know, and just say, hey, what do you think of the select board decision the other night where they banned this so-and-so? And I may get an opinion that is completely uh, contradictory to my own opinion. But that forces me to think about it and think about another human being standing right there I'm having a conversation with who doesn't share my opinion. It may influence my opinion. And that's the sense of community, whether it's in the library, newspapers, and letters to the editor, that you got to be careful when you start losing that uh, you really lose a critical mass that is central to a democracy. Penny, when you, you talked about the ills that can befall communities that don't have enough coverage, uh, how do you view some of these new information deliver, delivery systems, wh- whether it's, I mean, there's obviously TV and radio have been around that kind of reporting for a long time, but these independent sources, citizen journalism, I don't want to say vigilante journalism, but a lot of new players coming in that are diversifying the viewpoints. How do you think that fits in with the problems that you documented? 
Well, I want to get back to what Lincoln was saying. You know, I think that one of the things that we have depended on uh, local newspapers to do over the 200 and some odd years of uh, our history is is actually three things. You know, Dan uh, in the past, by the stories he chose to cover, by how he covered them and how long he covered them, and by the editor then weighing in on the editorial page with offering suggestions for something, you, you really had the ab- ability to both uh, to kind of set the agenda for what uh, people should be concerned about. Uh, and as a result, you know, newspapers could have been viewed, good, strong newspapers as problem solvers for those communities. So, you know, I think that, you know, look, we need, as Lincoln says, more retired people deciding to, to share their, uh, their uh, experience and their uh, expertise with uh, others to cover things that aren't being covered. Uh, we need citizen journalists to show up. Uh, but we, we also can't get back to the fact that we've lost a lot of journalists. You know, Dan has fewer uh, people to be able to disperse in, in ways that he could have. And that means that over time we lose news. We lose, uh, we lose the investigative pieces that don't get done. We lose the analytical pieces that don't get done. We, we miss going to the routine government meeting in some out-of-the-way place in where you hear something or somebody whispers something that, like Lincoln says, it gives you an idea, and you then got a good story. So, I mean, I think that we need to look at all of these. I think that what we really need, though, is a credible and reliable source of that. And I think the problem with many citizen journalists is that they're perfectly capable of, um, you know, covering a a disaster, showing up at a wreck or showing up even at a city hall and reporting on the routine coverage. But unlike Lincoln, they're not going to be able to spot what might be a juicy story that really uh, is bubbling right below the surface. And if even if they did, might lack the resources they need to do that story. So we need to think about ways of collaborating and mixing all these new things together so that Dan gets the story ideas, decides in his own priorities what he can do and what he can't. But not all, not all newspapers are created equal. I, I think the Bangor Daily News is an except, exceptional source. Yes. What I call enterprise journalism. Yeah. And that is, they're not just reporting on, you know, what happened in an accident yesterday. Um, Bill Trotter and Gettler and Marino, I mean, these people just, I start my day with the Bangor Daily News and they just surprise me because they're really burning shoe leather to to inform me of what's beyond the, the uh, t- typical expected news. But, but let me give you another example too, uh, which is another great newspaper, I think, uh, in South Carolina is the Charleston Post and Courier. Uh, and what they have done over the last year is a series called Uncover. And what, what they did is go to 17 smaller news organizations and say, what is the story you don't have the resources to do? Let's work together and get that done. I think that's a perfect example of how we, with even with limited resources, you can begin to think differently about how we need to approach a, a situation right now. Dan, your news organization, along with some of the other papers in Maine, has done some collaborative journalism, right? Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, certainly. We did a big investigation um, last year, just about a year ago, with uh, the Portland Press Herald, which is you know the other big paper in the state, or sort of our biggest competitor. And that was one of those deals where there was um, 
um, you know, we had some sort of twin FOA requests or, uh, you know, public access or, or open access. Um, uh, the, uh, the, we realized that the press Herald, uh, was had going after the same story, had some similar documents already. We teamed up and we, you know, the main focus team did a, a big series. So certainly it's something that we sort of had a long history of partnering with other news organizations, main public, for instance, we, and WGME, uh, CBS 13 in Portland, we've been sharing stories for years. Um, and I think it definitely makes sense for both of our, both of our news organizations to, to share with our audiences. And but you own a bunch of the papers that provide weekly co- coverage in Wade, Northern Maine, right? Yeah, Bolton Presque Isle up there. Yes, we have um, several papers in from uh, St. John Valley down through to Holton, and we also have um, the uh, Penobscot Times and the Piscataquis Observer in Dover, um, and uh, you know we've got folks also in, in Portland. So we've got people from Portland to to Madawaska or Fort Kent. But that those would be the kind of small towns where coverage of what the select board is doing or not doing would be right in line with what Penny is talking about, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we've had some great, great stories from from up there, and and you know, our we, we cover things very closely up there because there's just sort of like a long history of of us covering these local towns as local as local places i mean it's similar to what we do in bangor bangor we have a few more reporters per town because it's a bigger it's a bigger city but yeah we do cover that very closely we cover you know ellsworth in that area very closely as well as belfast um when we go you know further away from our home territory sort of coverage strategy becomes a bit more kind of statewide right so what we cover in portland like how does it matter to the rest of the state that's kind of how we how we view it yeah and of course they've got their own paper you know, Portland does. Yeah, yeah, very good paper. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum this afternoon on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests are Lincoln Milstein, who blogs local news at the Quiet Side Journal, Penelope Abernathy, the visiting professor at the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University, and Dan McLeod, managing editor of the Bangor Daily News. Our topic today is Demise of Local News. What are we losing? The show is pre-recorded. You can send your comments or questions to news at weru.org. Please put democracy form in the subject line. I mean, we think back to it, kind of the golden age of journalism, but that wasn't perfect either. I mean, William Randolph Hearst was no angel, um, you know, so then there was corporate ownership, there were advertisers, there were probably always a lot of pressures. I mean, some of us are sort of wondering whether the diversification of news sources that comes from independent bloggers and citizen journalism is not actually a good thing in opening up and diversifying the um, perspectives that get covered. Um, I mean, I, that doesn't give us the cohesion angle that that Lincoln talked about. But Penny, how, how much of that is actually providing um, a democratic small d democratic benefit to our citizenry? The diversification of voices. Oh, I th- I think that you know as much as we can look back on the 20th century and be thankful for a lot of the. Um, uh, standards that were set in journalism that were actually a result of some of the uh, journalism that came from some of the people you just mentioned. Uh, you know, and even if we can look back on the latter half of the uh, 20th century and say that was the, basically the golden age for newspaper journalists, that was when uh, the number of journalists employed by newspapers were at its peak. Uh, you look back, I, I mean, in North Carolina, I look at the fact that 
you know, six uh, newspapers won seven Pulitzer uh, Public Service Awards uh, during that time. And they ranged in size from a 4,000 weekly all the way up to the Charlotte Observer. So, I mean, there was good journalism going on across the board. But I think we also have to say that the 20th century has a, a, a different kind of demand. And that is looking at areas and neighborhoods and communities that have been traditionally underserved. And I think that if you look at what we see in the country today, that includes minority concerns, concerns of minority communities that have traditionally been left out of the newspapers, news pages of many newspapers, uh, as well as other news organizations. But it also includes uh, those, those rural, hard to reach or economically struggling communities that relied on a state or metro paper like Bangor to tell them to make them belong inside Maine. And I mean, that that's what concerns me when you see many of these metro papers, whether it's the Atlanta Constitution Journal or whether it's uh, the Raleigh News and Observer, pull back on that state mandate and focus just on three or four counties because it, it kind of knit us together as a state. And that's why it's so important to continue to have not only the weeklies that are covering the on the ground stuff, but the state and regional papers, such as what Dan's talking about, uh, bringing us all together. So we need many, many inputs, I would say, and uh, the more, the better. And uh, as we kind of grapple with what are the news needs and how are they different in 21st century than they were in the 20th? What would one, you thing, one thing about that, if I could just jump in, one thing about yeah, the, the sort of the digital disruption of, of news has been that you've you've also you have a lot more opportunities to to the audience and find out what they care about. And we have a lot more data to inform our decisions. And I, people don't actually care about like they, I mean, they'll read, you know, stories that some people might think are, are cheap or whatever, but they really want high quality local news in every time we ask them in every possible way there is to measure the things that people actually care about are sophisticated stories about the areas that they care about. You know, it's really, I mean, the car crashes are important because I need to avoid that wreck. The, there's nothing sort of cheap or, you know, um, you know, wrong with reporting on what were those sirens I heard last night on Wilson Street. You know, that's that stuff really matters to people. But the stuff they really value and the stuff that, that, that they'll pay for are the the big investigations, the, the stuff about, um, you know, sort of following the trail of. Um, you know, we just recently did this thing on this guy who was accused of, of you know, defrauding the federal government through uh, PPP loans and like sort of just unraveling his sort of business empire. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that people actually do care about. And I think that for a long time, it was a lot harder to find out people cared about unless they called you at the at the office. Right. So it was sort of like on the editor to decide this is what I think is important. You know, now our jobs as editors is to decode what people want and and how to help them understand their communities and then provide as much of it as possible. I mean, it's interesting you're kind of saying that what people want is actually probably what they should, what they need, right? Uh, it was one of the questions that I had going into this of whether, you know, what people want is actually getting them what's good for democracy or what's good for them to know. Um, but it, it sounds like I would be surprised by the answer to that maybe. Well, sometimes, I mean, I, I think also that there, I mean, Marty, Marty Barron, former legendary editor of the Washington Post and for that, a bunch of places, he, uh, he had this line that is like, uh, you know, if it's, if it's, in, if it's important, it's our job to make it interesting. And I say that all the time. I pretend like I made it up. And uh, the, you know, the, 
going to a meeting and just saying, here's what happened to the meeting. Like that's not inherently interesting to a lot of people, but understanding the issues that are happening at this meeting and doing some pre-reporting or talking to folks after it and putting it all into a larger context and like doing the work is of value. People care about it. Right. So it's not, it, I think that we've certainly lost a lot of boots on the ground and a lot of the really close coverage of places that I wish we still had, but we've also, the level of sophistication of journalism is a lot more, you know, it's, I, I think that we're doing a lot of high quality work now, right? Cause you, you have to pick and choose your battles and the battle we choose is that we're going to tell really essential stories and we're going to dig really deep and we're going to focus on enterprise reporting because it can't be replicated. What, yeah, I'm going to ask you, Lincoln, then just to sort of, because you are representing sort of uh, a, a unique voice, a unique and authentic voice. You know, it's your own perspective that you're bringing. And I, I feel like some of the um, journalism that's being done or the blogging that's being done in your style is opening our news channels up to authentic voices that would not have had a chance to be heard before. Um, and I wonder if you observe that happening beyond your own experience um, in Maine's minority or underrepresented communities. Maine is a very interesting place in that, especially where I am located on the coast, because we have such a huge part of the population who are just summer people who own homes in Maine, but they're there for, you know, just uh, during the season. Those people are really my biggest block of readers because they're really interested in the in the towns where they own homes, but they don't, they didn't realize all the things that went on in the winter when they weren't there. Um, <laughs> and, um, and, and, you know, I, I, I say to them, you really had to vote in Maine if you care that much about it. And so many of them aren't that invested. And, and I, that goes to the point of the democracy. More and more I see in these small towns, they have trouble getting people to even run for office. I think that's a direct relationship to the information they're getting. And if you don't, if you're not that informed about your community, why would you, why would you run, run for office? Um, and so what happens is this, the planning boards are dominated by people with an interest in development and they run for the planning boards and it's usually a construction uh, company or it's a real estate lawyer, but people with a vested interest in development and not in not people with a vested interest in residential keeping the town rural. And so that's a tension. And it, come, it, it is directly related to the journalism we choose to write about. One last thought, uh, and, and Dan brought it up, and that is COVID was a disaster not just not just because it was such a huge public health challenge, but it was also an international story, a, a national story, and a local story. And so many of our newspapers had to devote enormous resources to cover that story day to day. And by doing that, they chose not to do a second story on the planning board, not to do a second story on the select board. And and you know, Dan could probably speak to that a lot more with a lot more expertise than I can, but I can see all the papers having to make that decision every single day. Do you want to speak to that, Dan? Yeah, with COVID, I mean, we totally reorganized the, the newsroom. Like everybody had a totally different beat. Like you cover Ellsworth? No, sorry, you now cover this. Like it was everyone, you know, it was this big conversation about like, what are the things we really need to cover? And uh, 
it totally, yeah, we totally had to throw everything out and start over. And, you know, we did that for a few months and then we pivoted and tried to try to do approach, but it was extremely disruptive. And it was also, I, I think, you know, we, we, you know, Leah Russell had a, a piece about it uh, pretty recently about sort of like the, the long time leaders in public education around the Bangor area leaving as a result of just sort of like the intense political polarization that we're seeing in the school boards where, you know, people are, you know, now supposed to enforce mass mandates or, or, you know, handle these sort of really thorny issues they never had to deal with before. Um, you know, the sort of debates about critical race theory and, and all that kind of stuff. I think that the, and, and we also saw, I think, the, I think it was the last election, like fewer people wanting to compete for some of these seats. I'm not clear to what degree that's because of the lack of information and how much it is just sort of like a burnout because local officials are now facing a lot more sort of scrutiny and anger. Yeah, we did a show on that a couple months ago, and it was, you know, take a devastating toll on some of these school board and election officials. It was tough. I mean, one thing that's happened out of COVID that wasn't maybe so bad is that a lot of these school board meetings, a lot of the select board meetings in Maine, a lot of these meetings are now on YouTube. Like you can watch them from home. And I I mean, I don't really have any numbers on whether that means more people watch, but does actually participation live and in person sort of make up for the lack of news coverage or are we still missing something if people are there in person versus reading into the paper? Well, I'll let uh, Dan give you his his, uh, editor's perspective on that. I mean, uh, one of the things I've never lacked for in uh, when I'm in, whenever I'm in Vermont, it seems like if I turn on eight different television stations, they're covering some government meeting going on somewhere in the state of Vermont. So again, in New England is very different. I would, I, I'm hard pressed when I'm in North Carolina to think of any time I've turned on a, a public access television uh, station and seen a, a local bo- a board meeting here. I think that, you know, it's one thing to show up. It's one thing to look at it on TV. It's great that technology gives us the ability, just like now, to be in different places and appear on a radio station uh, or a television station or the like. So it, it has opened up a lot of new ev- avenues for us to get access to things. I think there's still, for many places, what I worry about is the lack of information about where to go to get that. How do you know? I mean, it, it gets back to what I'm talking about today. I had to, as a concerned citizen, do a lot of research to find out who was even running, who the candidates were. Uh, in the local election down here. And that happens too often in both local elections and here in North Carolina in state elections. Uh, In the past, we would have depended on the Raleigh paper or the Charlotte paper to vet all the statewide candidates. That doesn't happen anymore, right? Uh, So, I mean, there's a a real issue, and I'm, I'm not sure how relevant it is to Maine, but we really have depended on newspapers, especially, to vet the, the candidates. I mean, I don't know who makes a good agricultural commission in Nisher in North Carolina. So I really wanted somebody who did to kind of tell me the pros and cons of who the candidates are. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what do you think of that, Dan? And I, I'm kind of probing around for the value added of editors, analysts. You know, I mean, it's not just the direct experience of being there. In some ways, it's provoking some what do I think about this conversation? 
What do you think? I'm sorry, but being there, what do you mean? Well, like, it, what's the difference in for me in watching my select board meeting on YouTube or going to it in person versus reading a news story about it where there's been investigated journalism and editor and some analysis brought to the issues that were presented. I think I'm oh. asking, what's the value of editorship? Like, like why, why don't I just go to these meetings and see what happens myself? Rather than read it in the paper, yeah. Because most stuff doesn't happen in meetings. You know, the, the, a lot of stuff happens outside of meetings or, you know, they're in executive session. Um, you know, they happen in the parking lot or it's, you know, the meeting is where they they vote on the thing or they there's a public debate about it. But the lead up to it is often where a lot of the reporting is done. So, I mean, there's certainly a value in seeing, watching your, you know, seeing how your sort of local representative, represented assembly works. I don't, I think the, the idea being that like, not everyone has the time to go do that, you know? So why, you know, that's what news organizations are there for to, to probe and to, and to explain what's happening and what it means too. I mean, some of this, I mean, a lot of what, what happens in meetings also is like pretty jargony. There's a lot of rules around it and the way that people talk is kind of can be inscrutable. So it takes a certain expertise sometimes to say what's really going on, which is often, if you ask like a, the, the the council chair in Bangor, what happened at a meeting versus if you ask a reporter what happened in the meeting, it's going to be a different interpretation. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERUFM. This is Ann Luther, League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Penelope Abernathy, visiting professor at the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University, Dan McLeod, managing editor of the Bangor Daily News, and Lincoln Milstein, who blogs local news at the Quiet Side Journal. This program program was pre-recorded. No listener calls are being taken. A lot of the papers that have classically fueled our news readership have been for-profit. And we can argue about what's enough profit and is a marginal profit or a great profit or whatever. Um, But, you know, your paper, Dan, is a for-profit. Lincoln's is a completely volunteer operation. We've got the main monitor, which is nonprofit journalism. How is the shifting business model of how papers pay for itself, you know, sort of feeding into this question of whether there is enough? Who wants to take that first? Lincoln, do you have a thought? I think, I think nonprofits are here to stay. And um, they, uh, most of them, I, I believe, Penny, are self-sustaining now um, through donations. And, you know, the, and they're hybrids, you know. Um, Dan has partnerships. Don't you have a partnership with uh, the main monitor? Don't you run their content now and then? I know yeah. they run yeah. yours. Yeah. So um, you know, the more the merrier. The more um, the more journalists we have, it's a good thing. And whether it's nonprofit or for profit or a tired old retiree, um, I think it it I think um, it, it lifts all boats. What do you think, Dan? The business model shifting is it sustainable? Yeah. It seems to certainly be. Um, I think you know these seen outfits like Report for America, of which we're um, we're a newsroom that's hosting um, um, a Report for America reporter this coming year. Um, th- that's certainly been a big success. I and mean, one of my favorite uh, sites is uh, you know the City on in New York City. Um, and you know back in the, the during the when the pandemic first hit and we got you know we were facing some it was a real tough time for for newspapers that suddenly you know, advertising, the floor just dropped out. And we asked our audience uh, to help support us. And they did, you know, we had hundreds of people from across the state and across the country that chipped in. So I think it shows that 
there's a future in audience supported news. Um, and you know, that's the, what our digital subscriptions are, are growing really fast. And that's really clear that the audience is going to support the future of, of, uh, of the newsroom. Can, can I just uh, add, I've spent uh, the last 15 years having uh, uh, worked with Lincoln before and been in, uh, very focused on national uh, news organizations, thinking about what it takes for local news organizations to construct a sustainable business model. And I want to say that whether you're looking at a for-profit or non-profit or uh, some hybrid model, there are three things that, are, that I've found that are pretty much determinant. One is the demographics of the community. Uh, you know, do you have a, a community where people are willing and able <laughs> to uh, to support a newspaper? Uh, two, do you have the kind of local ownership or, or the kind of ownership that gives the local editor and publisher the kind of latitude to respond to local needs and uh, expectations, just like Dan was just talking about? And three, do you have sufficient capital? Uh, and capital to invest, because as, as Dan talked about, too, it, there's nothing, nothing we can't predict what a newspaper is going to look like in uh, Bangor in five years to say nothing of 10 years. And, it, you know, what shape it's going to be. You don't know what the answer is there. What I really worry about is most of the nonprofit money is going into areas where there are already multiple uh uh, media options. And I really am trying to get people to focus on what are the areas that are not being covered and how do we get uh, either for-profit or non-profit sustainable business models into those, uh, those communities, because they're exactly the communities that need the critical information that to, to, for the residents to make the kind of decisions they need to make. Uh, we, I, go I, ahead. I, I, I totally agree. You know, Maine, Maine has like, 500 towns, 500 municipalities. And I can't imagine some of these municipalities in these news deserts uh, making decisions. I'll give you an example. Washington County, for instance, uh, there, there's a very famous fishing town called Jonesport. You know, in those towns, they don't have newspapers that publishes the uh, legal notices of what the planning board agenda is. And suddenly, out of nowhere, somebody wants to build an aqua farm. In, in Jonesport, right? Doesn't uh, and nobody knows about it. So for about three months, people kind of hear about it. It's kind of hearsay until they apply for the permit. And the next thing you know, they've already gotten the permits, and they're on, they're on the way to building this huge aqua farm that is going to completely change the town of Jonesport. And 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 that's a, a good example of a news desert and the lack of information. That is that completely, completely changes it down. Yeah, and I mean, we have some of those in Maine. What what can people do if they live in a town like that to foster the kind of news and journalism in their community that we've been talking about? They Demo need hire troublemakers. Spur <laughs> 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 <Or> the citizenry. <laughs> I mean, what what other what other uh, avenues are there for citizen activism in this area? I mean, it's not everybody can just start up a blog or, you know, start up a paper from scratch. I mean, what can people do? Oh. Well, you can send all your story ideas to the Bangor Daily News, <laughs> news at bangordailynews.com. Um, but no, really, I mean, we get, we get tips from places that don't have, um, 
that don't have uh, uh, you know a newspaper in their town, but we cover we're adjacent to it. We we you know we're we're there you know covering stuff from time to time, and uh, we get some great stories that way. So I mean, I just there's a lot of there's not a lot of I mean there's there's journalists in this state. You know, there's there's people who are interested in these in in stories no matter where they are. It's a small enough state that if there's like a really interesting main story, almost anyone will you know want to cover it. I remember there was a there was a story that the uh, the Sun Journal did about a commune up in northern Maine. You know, is nowhere near them, but they did it anyway. You know, I, I just reach out to your local newspaper because we like we knowing that there were you know as you said earlier when there's not as many people patrolling the streets. You know, we rely on a relationship with with uh, the audience. So reach out. Well, we're running out of time this afternoon. This was a great conversation. I want to give you each maybe one minute, a minute and a half to throw some final thoughts down for our listener audience. And I'll ask you first, Lincoln, just take a minute or so and wrap it up for us. Well, I don't have much to add. I think this is a tr- tremendous subject. And uh, I'm so happy to, hear, to see the great work that Penny and, and uh, Dan are, are doing. Um, and I would beseech the citizenry to really take alert of, of, of this and figure out ways to to get information out. Dan, what are your parting thoughts? Subscribe to your local newspaper, even if you disagree with them. Uh-huh. Subscribe to as many as you can, because um, that's really what that's really what it comes down to. Facebook and Google are not going to save the news, most likely. It relies on local news organizations um, and, you know, relies on local news organizations being able to make money through uh, digital subscriptions. So, you know, support them and tell them what it is that you're looking for. Tell them what, what, if you don't want to subscribe to them, what would help you subscribe? Thank you. And to you last, Penelope, what, what parting thoughts would you leave with our listeners today? Well, let me let me second both what Lincoln and uh, Dan said, but add this too. I mean, I hope that the program has uh, convinced people who may not have thought about this before, but we all have a stake in good, strong local news. Uh, We all have a stake in the future of the local newspaper in whatever form it's delivered in. So back to what Dan said, support it in any way you can support it with good tips, (laughs) support it with uh, financial tips uh, and uh, Support other, not just your newspapers, but others that are covering areas and think, too, about what you can do to get that news to communities that may not have had it in the past. Penelope, are there public policy advocacy um, items that you would also recommend? Uh, yes, there's uh, there's one that has been before Congress now for about uh, uh, six months, uh, which I, I really actually like. Uh, people say, oh, uh, we don't want to have... Um, public funding, you know, that raises all sorts of problems. In fact, public funds have uh, subsidized and supported newspapers for a long time, including the postal rates. And it did it through the payroll protection plan of many small newspapers going forward. Um, It's called the Local Journalism Sustainability Act. And what it does is provide indirect tax support. And in other words, you get a tax credit for newspapers, small newspapers that hire reporters. And I think that's what we really need. I like the fact that it's focused on getting more reporters, getting Dan others more reporters. So, I mean, it's, it, there's that. There's, a, as Dan refers to, too, uh, indirectly, there's lots of regulation and um, being considered, too, uh, 
that might uh, eventually benefit lots of local newspapers that include uh, uh, getting tariffs for for some of the uh, news organ for some of the tech companies that have uh, uh, basically uh, eroded the business model and destroyed the business model for for many newspapers. So there's a lot going on right now. I'm encouraged by the fact that we have support all the way from Congress down to the community level, uh, and that's what it's going to take, I think, to uh, to build a robust and healthy news ecosystem uh, in the 21st century. Thank you so much, all of you. We are now out of time this afternoon. Penelope Abernathy, visiting professor at the at Northwestern University Medill School of Journalism, Media, Integrated Marketing Communications. Dan McLeod, managing editor, Bangor Daily News, and Lincoln Milstein, retired media executive who now blogs local news at the Quiet Side Journal. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM, streaming at WERU.org. If you have a comment about this show, send it to news at WERU.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. The League's website is lwvme.org for more information about this topic or to learn about other shows in this series. You can subscribe to our podcast at lwvme.org. We'll see you here next month.